Michael, welcome to Wealth Chat. Nice to be here. Of course. I'm very excited that you could make it because I find you to be a very interesting person and I uh, want to know more about you. So this is a perfect forum for that. Well, that's good. I'm glad somebody finds me interesting. <laughs> no, you're very interesting. Um, but before we get started, please introduce yourself. Michael Simonetta. I'm uh, a career entrepreneur, uh, mostly in the financial services business. I'm currently the chairman of Evolve ETFs and uh, do some philanthropy uh, through my own foundation. That's basically the the thumbnail at this point. <laughs> I feel you're being modest because I checked your profile and you have a lot more in your background that I found really fascinating. And I guess we can start there. Um, for instance, uh, in the 1990s, yeah. you had a software startup yeah. called Triversity. Yeah. And I'm very fascinated by startups, tech startups before the 2000s. So uh, share a bit about Triversity. What was it? What did you do? Yeah, it's a, it was a company focused on uh, point-of-sale software for big retailers. Uh, it was uh, created by a friend of mine who I went to school with. Um, <clears throat> and um, a few of us got together and we started the business and it turned into a pretty big uh, software business at about four or 500 employees. Went through the uh, ups and downs of starting a company. And grew into a pretty good company, and then we sold it to SAP in uh, 2005, um, very successfully. But, you know, starting a company from a vacuum, like starting from zero, I've done that a few times. Uh, it's tough. It's, it's not for the faint of heart. Uh, and it's very, very difficult, more difficult than people give it credit for. I imagine so, and I would love to dive a bit more into that. But back to Traversity for a minute. Because it was in the 90s, I'm just always very curious about the type of mindset that you need for technology, for being innovative. I would say nowadays, if someone creates an app, it's kind of like, okay, you created an app, good job, mm -hmm. right? Because there's so much around us. But back then, there wasn't as much. So, like, what kind of started it all? Like, what compelled you guys to say, we're going to create this software? Yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, it's more basic human behavior to some extent. Like my, my, my friend, who, was, who ended up being the CEO of the company, was working for a, another company at the time. And he was, you know, and I was, I was an accountant. I was a CPA working in public accounting at the time. And I was giving him advice. And uh, he was talking about the frustrations of, of working for that particular company and the fact that it wasn't very innovative. And mentioned one day, hey, I'd like to start my own company because I have a great idea for how I can construct the software to work better. And so uh, it started from that. And then we started talking about it. And uh, eventually a couple of his colleagues joined him. And, uh, and then we co-opted one of our friends who had more money than all of us <laughs> to help fund the startup, the startup of, the, of the company. And it was really just that, like, it wasn't, it wasn't like the master plan to solve the world's problems. It was really a better way to do something that was already being done. And he felt like he had a better answer, better mousetrap. And he did. And, uh, it, it got, uh, a lot of traction. We got some customers. We, we ended up being probably the biggest supplier to the U S military of any software supplier at the time, at least that kind of software. We had the U.S. Army, the U.S. Navy, the, um, uh, the Coast Guard. We're all retailers. When you think about 
U.S. Navy and Army, these are huge retailers. They have to set up stores all over the world to, to you know, look after their, their personnel. So, like, the U.S. Army is a $9 billion retailer at the time. It's probably even larger than that now. And the U.S. Navy was a multiple billion dollar retailer as well. So, we, we ended up being the software provider and global um, support network for that, for that point of sale. So, I used to joke with my, with my partner that we were going to get a visit from the CIA because we could, <laughs> we could easily create, uh, you know, a, uh, a disruption to the U S military by, uh, changing the software and we wouldn't be able to transact there anywhere across, uh, across their installation. So it's interesting. And eventually we, you know, we hit the 2000 era. We, you know, we could, we could sense that things were shifting. Um, you know, SaaS was a, was a new thing back then. Uh, and we could sense that things were going from, you know, license uh, model to a SaaS model. And we did an acquisition at the time using up uh, some of the, you know, capital that was available to tech companies in the, in the run up to 2000. And then we lived through the, the crash in 2000, which wasn't a great thing. It affected our business. We had to take a few steps backwards. We had to restructure. We had to raise some additional capital. But, you know, the CEO at the time did a good job of uh, refocusing the business. And we eventually got an exit to that business to, the, to SAP. At that point, SAP and Oracle uh, wanted to get into retail. So it was just they started competing with each other to find retail companies to buy, thankfully. And they were bidding against each other to to buy a bunch of retail oriented companies. And we happened to be one of the ones they targeted. And so we, we ran, we ended up uh, getting a very good price for the company. Yeah. That's really fascinating that uh, I never thought about the army in that, yeah. in, nobody, in that manner before. <laughs> nobody thinks that the army and the Navy are big retailers, but they're huge retailers. They have very sophisticated management. Like they're not, they're not, uh, you know, they're not uh, mom, mom, pop type managers. They're they're very sophisticated in what they do. Well, you guys clearly created an excellent piece of software if they even wanted it. Right. So you know that's. Um, I mean, congratulations to you guys. Even though you sold it off, so it was a successful venture for you. It even, was, despite the turbulence of the tech bubble. Yeah, I mean the tech bubble, you know, almost killed us. Like uh, when uh, we did an acquisition. Uh, in at you know sort of I think it was circa 1999 in that in that range and you know because capital was so available uh, you know I think we did that acquisition probably less um, disciplined than we would have otherwise and that acquisition didn't turn out to didn't turn out well and it almost uh, it almost uh, took us down as a business so we had to restructure. Uh, around that acquisition in a, in a sense and then uh, we had to raise additional capital which diluted diluted the equity that the uh, founders had but nonetheless uh, we still were we managed to get back to you know we had a valuation of the company going into the tech bubble that was probably a little bit lower than when we actually exited at and the only reason we exited at a higher value was because of that competition between sap and uh, oracle Competition's always great, isn't it? It's the best. <laughs> it's, it's the one. It's the one transaction that I've been involved in where we had absolute leverage. Like we, we, um, they were trying to acquire it and trying to acquire it before uh, SAP was determined to beat Oracle 
at something because they had lost a few races to mm. acquire companies. So when we did the uh, the agreement review, we they had uh, you know they had thirty two points or something. We said no to every single one of them, and they were like, "What the hell? We're kind of you know these Canadian these guys you know, who <laughs> they think they are, you know?" And then you know they said we we're putting pens down, and we said, "Okay, put pens down." You know, we're going we're gonna to just walk across the street and sell it to Oracle. Yeah. And uh, they came back the next day and said, okay, okay, we're, we're okay. We're okay with all that stuff. That's the only time I've ever had that yeah. kind of leverage in a transaction. Well, sometimes people's egos get the best of them and they really, you know, especially when they're in, a, in that type of competition, it some becomes personal from my perspective, where they just really want to get in there and say, I'm not losing this one. To the point that sometimes rationality gets put at the door because if they had 32 points that they wanted and you guys said no to all of them and then they still came back, I got to wonder what's going on there. <laughs> well, I mean, and that, I mean, it was for them, I mean, this was a pimple, like it wasn't going to hurt them, you know, one way or the other. In fact, later on when my partner went to work for SAP for a period of time, he said, well, you know, we would have gone, you know, X million more on the, on the transaction. <laughs> so we left money on the table. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I do take your point. Like when you're in a acquisition driven environment, I mean, CGI is an acquisition oriented company uh, as well and a great company. So you, there's, there's ways to do acquisitions that work and there's ways to do acquisitions that, that sometimes you're reaching too far and it ends up blowing up in your face. If I had to pick, you know, having done, having built businesses that were acquisition driven and other ones that are, are uh, you know, uh, growth driven, uh, like internal growth driven, I'd say the internal growth uh, way to create value is a lot easier. Uh, but if you can get on a roll with acquisitions and you have access to capital and you have good deal guys, you know, disciplined deal uh, uh, principles, then you can also do very, very well. Uh, I imagine so. And I, I was going to ask you actually about organic growth versus acquisition, because you've been a part of all these different firms that you were either a managing partner or a founder. Yeah. So I, I suppose part of it depends on industry when you think about organic growth versus just yeah. acquiring it. But from your, from your perspective, I suppose, what has worked the best for you yeah. in, in your experiences? I would say, you know, net-net uh, organic growth works better for me. It has, it has worked better in terms of creating value. I mean, in the Triversity case, it was virtually all organic growth until we did that acquisition at the end that almost killed us. And then we recovered through organic growth. Uh, and in the case of, uh, you know, first asset, it was mostly acquisition driven and, uh, it was very difficult. Uh, like I, I used to call it a six ring circus. Like it was very, very difficult to manage that process. And very few people in my mind, especially in the asset management business, know really how to acquire and, uh, and integrate businesses that have human capital at the center of them. If you have a, if you have a product that you can integrate, like, you know, a widget, let's not say, let's say mutual funds that are like widgets in a sense, you know, CI mutual funds was, you know, extremely successful, uh, you know, buying and acquiring and integrating, uh, you know, the acquisition they did and they created tremendous value doing that. 
what we did at First Asset was way more complicated. We were trying to keep the teams, the human capital teams that we were buying and keep them happy. And that's like, that's like a six ring circus because everybody's got their own, their own deal, their own perspective on themselves. And so it, it becomes tough to keep those guys um, working in the right direction all the time. So it's, it's very, very difficult. Uh, so with uh, my latest thing with Evolve, it's been uh, almost entirely organic growth. We've done, we did a small acquisition at the very beginning. And I think it's worked really well. When we do look at, we do look at acquisitions today, but we look at them very, in a very disciplined way. And uh, if we can't see that it's going to add value and it's going to be integratable immediately, we tend to shy away from any of those ideas. Right. Well, you brought up first management. So let's talk a bit about first asset that. management. First, my apologies. First asset management yeah. uh, or AMG. As it turned into AMG. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's speak a bit about that. That was what you started after uh, Traversy was sold. No, it's actually, it was actually sort of overlapping. Oh, it was, okay. Uh, so yeah, I used to say, you know, Triversity was my night job and uh, First Asset was my day job. <laughs> I I was the CEO of uh, a First Asset and founder, and co-founder and CEO. So it was like 24-7 um, work. And uh, Triversity by that time had grown into a, a decent sized company. It was run by my friend, uh, Dave Thomas, who was the CEO. And, uh, you know, I was essentially providing mentorship, executive chairman type uh, stuff in the background, a little bit more interactive than the average executive chairman, but it was like a night job. So, mm-hmm. um, but I liked it because it gave me a, a variety of things to think about and to understand And Obviously the interplay between the companies and some of the things that they were going through from an acquisition perspective, you know, informed the other the other uh, experience i think in the first asset case that was much more of um you know where i was not so much an entrepreneur but a hired uh ceo um and it was you know managing a bunch of stakeholders and managing a bunch of uh affiliates uh and managing the team that was also doing the acquisitions and managing those affiliates so it was it was a it was a challenging, challenging thing to do. Probably the most challenging thing I've done. Right. And can you speak a bit about some of the work that you did? Because it sounded really interesting. You helped with firms raise capital. You helped with restructuring or restructuring. Yeah. Oh my goodness, I can't yeah. speak today. Yeah. Restructuring. Um, so what was that like? And especially this was probably in the earlier 2000s. Um, during that era, when we had kind of emerged from the tech bubble and, and everything that came along with that? Well, I mean, at the, in the, in the, you know, 2000, 2001 era was, uh, you know, was a, uh, a high, uh, high active, high stress period because, uh, both the tech business that, um, I was, uh, the chairman of, uh, Triversity and then first asset went through, dramatic upheaval i mean in if you recall you know in the tech market probably don't recall you're too young uh but uh you know in the tech uh, uh bust uh the uh you know the nasdaq dropped more than more than 50 percent uh during that period of time and the dow also dropped significantly 
And so you had a, I had a business based on assets under management and our revenue was based on assets under management and they, you know, went through uh, a, a big downdraft and we had, uh, as an acquisition company, we had leverage. Mm. So it's not a good thing when your income is yeah. going down and your leverage is the same. So we had to deleverage. We did some stuff to deleverage and survive. And then eventually we sold that business too. And it, it happened that I sold, um, we sold First Asset and Triversy in the same year. We sold them both in 2005. So I used to joke that I, you know, I went from having two jobs and no cash to having more cash and no job. Because <laughs> <laughs> then I, was, I wasn't doing the day job or the night job. Yeah. And actually that summer of 2005 was one of my fondest memories because it was, it gave me time. My son was 10 at the time and he was playing baseball. So I started coaching baseball. We went on a few baseball trips and, uh, it was, a, it was a, it was a wonderful, wonderful period of time for me to take, you know, to, to, to chill a bit for a little while. So I kind of chilled for about two or three years and then started again, started a new business again later. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure you deserved it having had a day job and a night job for years yeah. and going through some very volatile times, I'll say, with uh, everything that happened in the late 90s and early 2000s. Yeah. Um, but, like, Michael, what drives you? I'm, I'm very curious because you're a serial entrepreneur. You kind of go from one firm to another. You're usually uh, start founding these firms or you're helping manage them. Like, what compels you to do that? What What do you find so fascinating about it? Yeah, I mean that's that's a that's a, like a existential question, you know, <laughs> to some extent. Um, I think it's at the the core of it. Uh, I like to uh, I like to solve problems. Like I'm a problem solver. I'm not a marketing guy. Like that's so I'm a I'm a good um, you know sort of complement to the marketing guys. And most of the partners I've had through those businesses and I've always partnered with people. I don't, I've never done a business on my own without anybody um, aside from some of the consulting that I did in, in, in between things that I was doing. But uh, most of the time I'm partnering with somebody with complementary skills uh, like Raj Lala who runs Evolve is a consummate marketing guy. He's one of the best marketing guys I've seen in the business. And, uh, you know, he and I work well together because we complement each other's, um, skill sets and our styles. So, you know, in the end, I think you, you have to find the right team and then tackle something. And there's great sense of accomplishment when it works, you know, and a lot, some of it's got to do with, you know, proving people wrong because <laughs> most people predict your failure at the beginning of a business, you know, just about everybody is betting against you that, you know, isn't your friend or isn't maybe even some of your friends are betting against you. You don't know it, but you know, the, the facts are that, you know, uh, people have, you know, kind of, we have a bit of a, you know, eat your own mentality in Canada. So, you know, it's partly that it's partly succeeding, even though, you know, people think you're not going to, and then also, you know, just solving the problems and, and, uh, you know, building teams and having, uh, achieve something. It feels great when you achieve something with a team that you like and that you interact with and that you fit well with. And, it, uh, 
it's the best it's the best kind of feeling to have if you will i mean that sounds amazing it almost seems like uh just finding a group that you get along with who uh, compliment you you compliment their skill set and embarking on a fun adventure at the end of it in some ways <laughs> <laughs> stressful but a stressful but fun adventure i mean obviously the the outcomes drive the amount of fun you have you know if the outcome's really good and positive it's it's a lot of fun if the yes. outcome isn't as good uh then it's not as much fun but most of the things i've done have have uh, you know we've found really positive exits for the for the businesses that we started and uh and i've had great relationships with the people i've built businesses with you know well for the most part Oh, you know, it, it's funny as you were saying that because, and some people think uh, I'm crazy for feeling this way. Some people think it's great that I feel this way, but I believe discomfort is not a bad thing. And I've said this many times before, where I feel it helps you grow. You really learn who you are. You sort of come to yourself in some ways where yeah. if you're just always, you know, just stagnant and you're happy, I, I don't yeah. think there's much room for you to grow in that kind of area. So I, that's one of the reasons why I like different challenges. I, I like variety of work because sometimes I don't know everything, obviously. Most of the times I don't know, actually. But I just, it, I always think it's fun to kind of solve that puzzle and to yeah. learn something new. And there's a sense of accomplishment to it as well. Yeah, I think, you know, you have to have a compliment. You know, if everybody sees the world the same and you're, you know, you see things the same and you experience the things the same, you know, you're not going to have success because, um, you know, you're not going to capture more of uh, the opportunities, uh, you know, and, um, you know, teams that work well together usually have complementary skill sets. So they see a broader, uh, you know, broader landscape and they understand the opportunity set and the solution set more thoroughly than if they were, you know, with a bunch of people thinking the same thing. Uh, this is one of the things I think that is dangerous for people, you know, when they get really successful is they tend to surround themselves with people that don't say no. Mm. They, you know, as they get more successful and they start thinking they're, they're all that, yeah. you know, they start uh, being less responsive to, uh, to, to counter, counter views. You know, it's like, uh, you know, you've all see, you've seen the, the movies and you can <laughs> speculate who, who I might be r referring to, uh, but, you know, where people get, you know, bigger than their britches and then they stop listening to people around them. And <clears throat> that, I think, ultimately leads to their demise, you know, and it may take a long time because they may have had great success. And but people who surround themselves with sycophants and, and people that think the same aren't aren't definitely aren't growing. Uh, and they're definitely not, um, you know, solving uh, problem solving as many problems as they could. And I would imagine that also wouldn't be a very fulfilling lifestyle to just be surrounded by yes men, to not have any like personal growth. It depends. To, I guess it depends on the personality. Some people yeah. are are very narcissistic and and really want that that uh, you know really want that. Uh, environment and you know if they've got a lot of money they can enjoy you know being on their boats <laughs> and flying around the world like uh, some of them sort of anesthetize themselves away from thinking oh you know like i'm the greatest there is and then i just stop listening to people and mm. they don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing for them from their perspective from their seat it doesn't look that bad so 
you know, it takes, it takes, it takes some, you know, inner skill, inner, you know, emotional IQ to really understand who you are, to really, uh, you know, to, uh, to understand what might be going on that make, make you in a, uh, not as effective as you could be. That's very true. And I, I want to real go back slightly to when we were speaking about teams. Um, something very big that happened during the pandemic was just the challenges around fostering talent, especially mm. the up-and-coming talent, mm-hmm. um, mostly because um, prior to the pandemic, you were in the office, you yeah. saw people, you know, you saw your teammates, uh, you were able to <coughs> see the folks around you, and it, you were just more in touch with yeah. with who was there. But with the pandemic, we we became a bit socially isolated and we lost that touch point. So in your experiences, like how have you ensured that you were fostering the next gen? Like what kind of approaches did you take and what did you find helpful? Well, I mean, I, I, my comments on this would be sort of, uh, you know, uh, personal to the situation we find, we found ourselves at evolve. And then my general observations about what's happening in the, in the broader context. But, um, you know, at Evolve, it brought the team closer, like, because we were a small, small team at the time. We're still a pretty small team. And so, you know, and we were under duress, like, uh, you know, <laughs> the markets were down, uh, assets were down, revenues were down. We, we had to, we had to really batten down the hatches and we had to really, you know, really look at our business and figure out, you know, what was, what was the absolute uh, most important parts of it. And, uh, you know, it really drew us closer together as a team. Uh, I think that experience uh, really is at the core of some of our cohesion as a team. Uh, you know, the team at Evolve has, has uh, evolved into <laughs> a really, <clears throat> really great team with Raj and, uh, you know, Elliot Johnson and Keith Crone, who are my partners in that business. They've, they've uh, you know, hired a good group around them and they, you know, they can do a lot of a lot of different things with a small amount of resources. As to the general comment that you made about you know isolation, you know in larger companies, and we see it. You know we interact with all the large banks and large dealers, etc. Um, so we have some perspective on it. I think it's it's really hurting the emerging uh, young people in those organizations. It's really hurt those people, the people in there let's say in their late twenties, early thirties, who are vying for managerial positions or, you know, promotions within their, within their companies. I think it's exceedingly difficult to promote somebody that you don't have a relationship with. And it's exceedingly difficult to build a relationship online Mm -hmm. uh, where you're not running into each other at the coffee shop or at the water cooler, as they say. Or, you know, just in the hallway, <clears throat> I mean, in Evolve, we were making decisions, you know, we'd get in the hallway and talk about something and make a decision. Um, you know, you can't do that online. You can't have uh, the sidebar discussions. Uh, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the joke telling and the, you know, the sarcasm and stuff <laughs> that goes on, you know, when you're in an office that, that has a way of bringing you, you know, closer together because you're having fun. You know, you can't do that online. Yeah. Uh, but in addition, you know, if you're trying to figure out who you're going to promote, um, if they're not showing up to the office and all you do is see them on Zoom or, or you know, your 
are you talking to them on the phone or, or whatever? Uh, I, I think it's 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 really damaging to those those young people. The older people who have the older managers who have achieved some degree of promotion and success within the organization, it hasn't really affected them. They can stay at home and they can you know work you know in whatever format they want, and you know it doesn't really impact them in their ability to execute their jobs. But, um, you know, I've had conversations with those mid-level people in large companies. And I say, how do you figure out who you're going to promote? And invariably they say, yeah, it's the guy who shows up in the office that I get to talk to. And, you know, so yeah. I think, I think we have a challenge going forward for that, for that uh, group in terms of how they're going to be promoted and, you know, how, how that process is going to work, especially if you're, still insisting on, you know, a hybrid work model or you're, you've gotten used to being at home. I think people are making the decision that, you know, those things that they're doing being at home are, are more valuable uh, than going to the office every day. But I don't think they're factoring in the costs of, you know, their future uh, promotability. I think that's not you know, apparent to a lot of these younger, younger people. So I, you know, if you're a young person trying to get promoted, go to the office. That's good advice. Yeah. Yep. And I, uh, to your point about, you know, having little jokes and stuff, like I, I'd say there's a lot of camaraderie that gets lost when it's just well, online, for sure. right? For sure. We, I mean, at Evolve, we're constantly, you know, kind of <laughs> jabbing at each other and saying, you know, <laughs> making little jokes and sarcastic remarks or, you know, or, you know, um, faking people out just to get a laugh out of them. You know, it's like, it's like part of the, part of the learning experience, part of the, the, the bonding that you do. Absolutely. Well, since you've brought up Evolve, let's speak about Evolve. Sure. Um, for those that are not familiar, Evolve is an ETF firm, but right. please tell us more about it. Well, we started in, uh, started it in 2017. So we've been just under six years in business. We're at six and a half billion in, in under management, which is pretty good growth. Probably one of the faster growing businesses in it's that space. It's amazing growth. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, it is. The team's done a fantastic job. Um, we have 26 funds spanning across a number of different product areas. I guess we've kind of carved out uh, some niche in the notion of being a thematic uh, provider, innovative products. Um, we brought out a lot of firsts in the marketplace. We had the first cybersecurity fund. We had the first uh, fund dedicated to the automation of the car. Uh, we had some other firsts uh, that uh, didn't work out, <laughs> <laughs> like the gender diversity fund. Um, and so, like, you know, it's disappointing that that didn't work out, to be honest. Uh, and so we just, uh, they, you know, we keep innovating, keep bringing out products and we just uh, brought a sort of la latest innovation is this uh, QQT, uh, QQT, uh, three Qs and a T. Yes. We call it Cutie uh, as, a, <laughs> as a short form. And that's the NASDAQ index with just the tech names in the NASDAQ index because people think the NASDAQ 100 is automatically all tech. It's actually the only 37 companies in the NASDAQ are true tech companies. So we thought, you know, if people really want to get tech exposure, they should buy the NASDAQ tech index. So mm -hmm. we brought that out with NASDAQ. Uh, we had, uh, we had our name on the board in New York city. It was, it's like kind of a milestone. 
and uh, we just keep innovating. And I think uh, the the products have have um, have been obviously uh, accepted, and uh, a lot of people like them. Um, and we're able to bring out products that are thematic, and uh, you know, hit a need that people are looking for to put in their their portfolios. Right. Uh, I mean, again, you guys have done a remarkable job, especially with the AUM accumulation, yeah, especially because ETFs, uh, there's so many, it's a bit of a saturated market when you think about yeah. it, because you can pretty much find an ETF for just about anything that you're looking for nowadays. Um, I do want to touch a bit on, uh, you mentioned some of the funds that did not do well, particularly the gender one, mm-hmm. because I feel that a lot of the times these types of funds get introduced and there's people get the wrong perception uh, of them. And so they don't always tend to do well where, Oh, you're not, you're not focused on performance. Now you're focused on gender issues. And a lot of the times focusing on gender issues will actually help drive performance. And I feel that message gets lost. Yeah. It was, that was a a disappointing fund. I mean, but you know, I always say like, if you're not, if you're not failing, you're not innovating, like you got to fail in order to innovate. So some of the products that we come out with just, fail for reasons that have nothing to do with the product. It has everything to do with the, the dynamics in the marketplace at the time. On the gender diversity fund, you know, we ended up being a one of two or three that got issued, you know, some, uh, I think RBC issued a product soon after us, et cetera. But we got very little traction, even though there was a lot of, uh, a lot of interest in the product, uh, there wasn't a buy-in. Uh, there wasn't a true buy-in from investors. And, you know, it has as much to do with the structure of how investments are made, you know, who's making those decisions. Uh, There aren't a lot of women actually pulling the trigger on decision-making in large pension funds, et cetera. Uh, At that time, there certainly wasn't. I think it's probably improved a little bit since. Uh, And I, I think people, you know, Talk the talk, but didn't walk the walk on it. Like, I think there was just, uh, and it's very disappointing because we had uh, probably the underlying infrastructure of that fund was the best in the marketplace. We had a firm in, uh, out of um, the Netherlands called Equileap, which has a world reputation for developing uh, data around the impact of uh, gender diversity on companies and the performance of companies. And they have their own index now, and it is outperformed uh, the index uh, probably by a couple of percentage points, based on the fact, uh, based on you know companies that have better gender policies in their in their uh, in their uh, res- human resources function. But uh, it just didn't get any buyers. It used to be a fund like I I talked to somebody about it, and they say, yeah, that sounds like a great fund. Oh, do you want to buy some? No, but I think you should go talk to. <laughs> You know, it's always that. Like, oh, yeah, it's great, great, fantastic. But, you know, you should really go see these these people. Oh, how about you? Uh, no, I. that's not really, doesn't really fit my, yeah. uh, you know, my portfolio. You know, so it was a hard, it was a hard sell. Yeah. So we, we, we went at it for two, two and a bit years and didn't get very far and then sadly decided to close it down. That That's unfortunate. And, uh, in my last episode, I had two great professors from Metropolitan University, yeah. and they're in the engineering world, computer science, all that good stuff. And I learned that, you know, I, 
I know that there's an issue when it comes to gender bias, of course, everyone's aware of that. But I thought we had made a lot of strides and it was disheartening to hear that even when you search things up, the quality that you get for when you search up for female things versus male things is much lower. And mm-hmm. I, I think it goes back to your point about there's a lot of talk, but not a lot of, in you know, firms, people doing walking walking the walk if you'll if you if well you i mean it it, it's an unfair generalization because some firms are doing better than others uh and you know the gender scores uh that equileap did for this for canadian market showed that most of the big banks were doing a pretty good job of of uh you know putting in place gender uh policies that that were um you know recognizing the contribution but you know a lot of it is um you know uh too much of it is uh, is uh, you know gender washing or whatever you want to call it. You know, so you don't put you know you don't put women in true positions of power. You put them in service positions. You know, so if you look at large banks, you know, a lot of the women that are senior in banks are in service positions. You know, chief administrative officer, chief legal officer, head of HR, that kind of thing. There's there's been a few that have become. Uh, you know, line positions, you know, running the bank or running the investment bank. Um, but uh, so to date in the big banks, nobody's been promoted to CEO. And, you know, the, the, the excuse you hear is, well, there isn't anybody that's qualified or there's not enough people that are qualified. That's not, that's not correct. There's yeah. lots of, lots of women that are qualified to run a big bank. So the, the people who are making that decision are pretty homogeneous looking, you know, they look like me, white, old, I've been on the board for a long time. It's yeah. hard. It's hard for change to occur unless those people are really embracing it. And uh, I think uh, there's been definitely resistance on that front. But it's not fair to say that the banks haven't done a great job promoting women in their organizations because they have. Oh, no, I believe the banks have. I meant in general, yeah. in, in, in different industries uh, across the globe or particularly in Europe. I think Europe's actually much ahead of us, but in North America, there's always a lot of talk across industries about wanting to promote women, but then we see statistics like this and it's kind of, okay, what's going on, right? There must be something Mm -hmm. wrong. Um, Perhaps there's some systematic issues, as you pointed out, that need to be figured out. Um, But I think within actually the IT and the financial world, we've done a great job in promoting women um, and especially with some of the... um, at board hires, there's a lot more women and uh, yeah. different representations, yeah. females of color, the, which the, I think is the great. The tech industry is is not a you know isn't, doesn't have a great reputation for promoting senior executives in the tech in the tech world uh, as a whole. You know, there's obviously yeah. companies that have done better at that. I think CGI uh, also gets good good marks on on gender. We're uh, very focused my, on my, diversity and yeah. inclusion. <laughs> There's the the firm that Equileap does an annual, you know, review of companies in, they were doing it in Canada. I think, you know, they ranked firms uh, and I think CGI was probably one of the higher ranking uh, software and tech firms uh, in the, in that ranking. And, you know, Europe is, for, is more, is far ahead of us in terms of uh, gender, but we'll get there. I think it's just going to take time. Uh, definitely. Now, before we went on the gender side of it, we were speaking about Evolve and uh, some of the great work that you guys have done there. And 
again, we were sp- speaking about the growth. So mm-hmm. the fact that you achieved kind of a milestone in AUM in such a sh- relatively short period of time. Yeah. How did you guys achieve that? Like, what was the strategy? How, what did you say? We're going to go in the market and we want to take it by storm. But how did you actually well, you know, implement uh, that plan? Like I, I, I have to hand it to the team, you know, Raj and Elliot and, and Keith. Because they're the ones that really, uh, you know, gauge the market and bring the products, product ideas. Like, I'm not the guy calling and saying, hey, I have a product idea. You know, <laughs> like, they call me and say, hey, what do you think of this product? Um, I think that, uh, you know, when Rosh came to me initially, and we had been partners in a firm just prior that we had exited successfully. And he had work, he'd gone to work for a couple of ETF firms and then, you know, left and, and wanted to start his own ETF platform. And he came to me and said, Hey, do you want to get involved in this ETF thing that I'm thinking of doing? And I was like, no, (laughs) (laughs) like how many ETFs can there be? Like that was my first sort of reaction. And then he said, well, you know, let me tell you what I want to do. And you know, his, his description was like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to run for the open space, which was to be in the spots where the big ETF uh, providers uh, weren't, which is, you know, in the thematics uh, spaces and some of the innovative spaces that we eventually brought a bunch of products out. So I think that was the key is getting into the space that, that the big players weren't going to. So, you know, nobody needed another S and P 500 index. Nobody needed another TSX 60 index. Uh, So, you know, you're going into spaces where people would have an investment uh, need that you know think that investment uh, proposition is a good one and you're filling that need with a thematic product or an innovative product in that area and you know in summary I think the guys have done a good job their batting average has been great you know p- bringing up products that people find attractive and it's been different products at different times we've had you know, uh, periods of time with growth where, you know, we had a preferred share fund that was attracting a bunch of assets and then that went out of flavor. And then we had the cybersecurity fund that, you know, was attracting a lot of assets and still does. And then, you know, lately it's been healthcare, you know, our health, our global healthcare fund is, is uh, growing rapidly. And it's one of the bigger funds that we have. We have uh, yield products, you know, all of our covered call products are, you know, have great yield on them. So people are attracted to the yield. Um, you know, we have the, the HESA products, the high interest savings accounts products that have yields that are, are great for the, the liquidity of that product and the safety of that product. Yeah. Well, especially now with rates going up, I imagine more yeah. people are flocking to those HESAs. Well, it's been, it's been one of the, you know, the, the, <laughs> the flows to those products across the board. We're, we're one of uh, five issuers, four major issuers. And uh, the flows into those products have been very strong in the uh, over the last um, fifteen or eighteen months. Uh, it's product yields currently five point four eight percent. Like it's and it's completely liquid and it's just bank deposits. So you know you, you can't get a more safe. And these are big banks. They're not they're not little banks. So they're essentially you know guaranteed by the government of Canada, although it doesn't have CDIC insurance or or um, uh, you know, covered through insurance programs, but you know, they're exceedingly safe and they're they're extremely liquid, and they're yielding five point four eight percent. Like that's a pretty good deal. I mean, it's crazy when I think about these numbers because five years ago, when I was in the industry and looking for bonds for reinvestments, yeah. 
at three years, you know, you were lucky if you got 3.5 and now a HESA is yielding over 5%, which is... Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, the, you know, the interest rates have gone up to fight inflation and uh, probably... Yeah. They'll probably continue going up a little bit for for a while, and then you know they'll probably stay there for a bit, and then they'll start coming down, I believe, the next year or sometime. Uh, but these products will still be very attractive on a relative risk basis. Yeah. Um, so you know, I think they're 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 an innovation that's you know seems like a simple innovation, but it's actually actually a lot more work to get that those products uh, constructed and and to market. Uh, you have to coordinate with banks. You have to coordinate with uh, with uh, different banks, and they all have different needs, etc. So it's it's not a uh, it's not a simple product, but it is simple from the investor's perspective. So let's speak a bit about that. When you launch something like an ETF, obviously there's the exchange, there's the banks, there's the end consumers. Like, what what does it take to actually launch one of these things? If for anyone that out there who might want to launch an ETF, like I imagine <laughs> there's a lot of hurdles involved. Yeah, there there are. I mean, but, you know, one of the reasons why ETFs have, have done so well as a category, like as a relative category, is because they are really accessible. Um, and they're, you know, they're, they transact easily. So when you launch an ETF, you can get it anywhere. As, if, as long as you have a brokerage account, you can, you can buy an ETF that's been launched and you can trade it and you can trade it daily. Uh, so it's very, a very easy uh, to, to own and very easy to transact more, you know, it, you know, the mutual funds are also easy, but there, there's a little bit more cumbersome nature involved in, in mutual funds and they're a little more expensive. So ETFs are cheaper, faster, easier. Um, so I think that's why we're seeing, ETFs uh, capture market share. In terms of how what it takes to issue a product, well, you got to start with an idea. <laughs> the idea is probably the key, uh, and it it sounds simple, but it's it's obviously not because you know we're we're mulling over the team is mulling over you know I don't know twenty thirty different ideas on an ongoing basis, and you know they're they're um, they're gauging interest, they're talking to people talking to advisors, talking to investors and trying to gauge the interest and, and read the tea leaves as to what, you know, what should be brought. Some of it is, uh, you know, more, uh, you know, less uh, like, you know, shooting for the stars kind of thing, but it's more, you know, down the middle looking for an answer to something that we know is an issue like the QQT uh, product is really, you know, people want tech exposure, but I don't think a lot of people know that, the NASDAQ 100 is 63 stocks that aren't tech. So if you want tech exposure, you know, you need a more pure version of that. So that idea, for example, that, that took, I don't know, six months to develop. Uh, we talked to NASDAQ. The guys started um, talking to their, um, you know, their advisor relationships to see if there was an interest level in that. And, uh, you know, we eventually, we eventually brought it to product to market recently. Wow. That I'm sure it's given, as we spoke before, it's a pretty saturated market. So trying to always, you know, uh, sort of, I suppose, in some ways, finding a needle in a haystack of that one thing that hasn't been done can can definitely be difficult. Yeah, I don't think we look at it that way. We don't we don't look at it as we're going to do the only product. Like this is the only thing, you know, in other words, there's lots of tech products, right? Right. 
But this is a particular version of a tech product that we think has appeal. Uh, so it th- doesn't have to be that precise as you're saying, like you have to, you know, find a needle in a haystack. You have to find a good product that uh, uh, meets a need and is well-structured and well put together. And I think that usually, you know, if you get those things right, and then it happens to be, you know, something that somebody, people really want at the time, like that your timing is right, then you're, you're hitting the ball of the park. But, you know, it, you know, you can hit, you know, doubles and singles and, uh, you know, not always hit home runs and, and still do quite well. So I suppose that's where the question about improving versus creating something new comes in, right? So you can, for instance, have an ETF out there. Let's talk about, you mentioned your health ETF. Mm-hmm. Life? Yeah. Uh, yes. So uh, life is great, especially if you look at, given our demographics, uh, healthcare is yeah. obviously a big concern. Um, but I'm sure that there's other healthcare ETFs out there as well. Yeah. So how do you, uh, like, let's start with Evolve's Life ETF. Like, what differentiates it to someone else's? Well, I mean, you know, we have an, that's an indexed ETF, but we have a an active management component, which uh, writes covered calls and up to a third of the portfolio. So that creates a, a yield stream uh, from the product. So you're not just relying on the capital appreciation of the product. So it, it has a pretty strong yield I, I can't remember exactly where it's at right now but it's you know probably in the high single digit yield um and i think people are attracted to the yield and attracted to the potential for future appreciation in the capital so you know that's a good product that's not a uh you know it's not a uh a rocket science product but it's a good product that hits uh you know hits the trends in the marketplace and then achieves uh, some of the objectives that investors have for yield and 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 growth, and so you know it's it's growing quite nicely. People are buying a lot of that, right? And I know you guys um, dub uh, evolve as uh, innovative and differentiated and thematic. Right. So I guess my question would be like, what makes it different? What makes evolve different? Yes. So if you if well, you were to say you want to be innovative and thematic, yeah, if you're if you're survival, just... <laughs> you know, like if we if we weren't innovative and thematic and and focused on the areas that people aren't in, then you know we wouldn't be doing as well. So like it's it's kind of some of it's like uh, you know uh, an instinct that you know is like you know we can't we can't we can't compete with with big platforms in the things they're strong at. We have to go and compete with things that we're strong at that they have trouble getting to because they're not as nimble as we are. So when you get a product approved in a, in a big, uh, big ETF platform, it takes a lot longer. They, it usually takes them a few months and they, their product development process could be, you know, a more extended version of what we, what we do. We could, you know, we could uh, decide to launch a product in a, in an afternoon if we wanted to. I mean, obviously that's an oversimplification, you have to do the homework in order to understand what the product's going to, what the elements of the product are. But the team has gotten exceedingly, exceedingly well at good at um, you know at that at that part of it, at getting getting products to market efficiently and uh, developing the right ideas. Your agility, agility is what helps differentiate you and help you get out to the market very quickly versus. Uh, I'm not going to name any names, but like other behemoths out there, it may take them longer just because there's a lot more processing on their end, perhaps. 
Well, yeah, and they're they're more structured, right? They by by definition they're bigger. They have to have more structure. Mm -hmm. So their processes for getting things uh, to market are longer and more complicated. So I think I think that that's one of our advantages. I think it's more than just agility, though. You have to have you have to have the knowledge base and the insightfulness to understand what might be appealing to a lot of investors and advisors. And you have to have the the market data. You know, you have to have the market intelligence. You know, you have to be talking to investors and advisors and understand what their what their needs are. And uh, you know that out of those discussions, you formulate. Hey, you know, I get a lot of advisors saying, "Wouldn't it be nice to get a, uh, you know, a pure tech product?" Um, you know, so you know that's that's how it kind of goes back and forth in the in the marketplace with our with our team. So it seems like market research is a very big component. Yeah, I don't think we do market research like uh, you know, like a big <laughs> firm does market research. But yeah, it is it is market research. It is getting out and and uh, understanding uh, the the landscape, understanding what products are out there, what products are appealing to investors and advisors, and then figuring out where there's a gap and a need and uh, trying to fill it. Right. Uh, I was going to ask, like, do you guys have some? fun ways that you do market research like you go and <laughs> set up a little booth somewhere and try to observe and see what people want <laughs> yeah we go to key and drink and <laughs> talk to people around us that's what we do um uh, yeah i mean there's different there's different you know there's different ways to get to the ideas i mean you know raj has you know tremendous network of advisors i think he's probably the best at uh, understanding the marketplace and what advisors are are looking for, so we rely a lot on his instincts mm -hmm. and and what he hears and what he understands. And obviously, we do homework. You know, to we have a team of people that does analysis and looks at the stuff. But at the end, it's like a gut call. Like a right. lot of this stuff is is just a call. Like yeah, I think it'll do well. Let's let's try it. And as I said, if you're not failing, you're not you're not innovating. So. We're not a hundred, we're not, you know, a hundred, you know, we're not batting a hundred, but we're batting enough. We're batting well enough that we're doing well. Well, you guys are doing very well. So I would say your batting average is uh, probably in that, you know, high percentile. Yeah. But that that's really interesting where I suppose because of the um, variety of, or the diversity that you have in your team, you have people with different backgrounds, different yeah. experiences, everyone comes together kind of has a brainstorming session. And then with the experience that I'm sure that you have, and I'm sure a lot of your teammates have, it's again, honed those gut feelings or, or instincts yeah. where you've seen things, you've experienced them and they help. Well, I, you know, I have, a, I have, I have a lot of faith in the team. Like, and you know, when they, when they come up with a product idea, um, you know, if they, if they're unsure about uh, their gut on it, or if they're, they think it's complicated or some, you know, there's some other complication. They'll, they'll come to me and ask me about it, but usually they're coming to me and saying, Hey, this is a product we're bringing to market. You know, <laughs> um, you know, it's not, I, I'm not involved in, in the market research per se, but they will ask me for my input at, at various points. If, if the product's more complicated, like on the QQT 
product. It was really their idea. They work with NASDAQ. I think I met NASDAQ when we were in Miami together. I mean, it wasn't like I wasn't involved in, hey, this is a great idea. But, you know, when they brought it to me and told me about it, I thought, you know, this is a pretty good idea. And, you know, it, I, think it, I think it is a great idea. Well, I would say so. Um, yeah. Because as you mentioned before, most people think NASDAQ and they think tech. Yeah. So to learn that there's a, just a bunch of biomedical stocks in yeah, there. Yeah, there's a lot of different stuff in there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of uh, interesting stocks in the NASDAQ, I'll, I'll, I will say that. Yeah. Um, now, if we sort of shift gears slightly, I did want to speak about um, Bay Street Hoops. Oh, okay. And because you and I met through that organization. That's right, yeah. And uh, of course... Thank you for your volunteering. <laughs> of course, I was happy to do it. Yeah. Um, and part one of the beneficiaries for Bay Street Hoops is Drive for Dreams. So right. I'd like to hear a bit about Drive for Dreams and your work there. Yeah. Um, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a labor of love in a sense. You know, I, uh, there's very few things that get me... Um, sort of uh energized than to talk about uh you know helping uh kids helping at-risk youth uh to get scholarships that's what the, the focus of drive for dreams is to try to help uh kids from at-risk neighborhoods um get uh use their basketball skills to get a scholarship to a u.s or canadian university i think we you know, when I look at the success of Drive for Dreams, that's how I measure the success. How many kids have we helped? And so over the years, I think we probably put 90, 90 or 100 kids into scholarships in various programs. Probably half of those are like NCAA Division I uh, programs that people were um, good enough to get the scholarships to. So Drive for Dreams started, I think, 2014, but I really been doing the things that Drive for Dreams does, you know, for a couple of years before that. And it was really a function of my son being uh, in, in interested in uh, basketball. He played basketball. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't a Division One player, but he played at Western, at the University of Western eventually. But as he was playing in high school, he, he was playing at a higher and higher level and he got, you know, to interact with teams and then we ended up traveling with some of these teams and he was good enough to make one or more of these teams, but I could see that they were, you know, resource strapped and, uh, uh, mostly, you know, kids from, uh, you know, single parented families, uh, difficult economic circumstances, not everybody, but a, a big chunk of them. And, um, so I started financially helping the team that he was playing for. And, uh, you know, I used to say, you know, like, if I give money to United Way, I'd rather give it to a, a team like this where I see the impact on the kids that were on the team. And so we started helping out with the travel costs, et cetera, to get these kids to, uh, you know, to uh, tournaments in the U.S. to be seen by coaches. And it went from there to uh, forming a foundation in, in 2014. And then soon thereafter, uh, I was introduced to the Bay Street Hoops people uh, through uh, CIBC contact and um, CIBC had been a sponsor uh, of uh, Drive for Dreams from the very beginning. And um, we were, you know, it was a wonderful uh, 
uh, partnership between us and Bay Street Hoops, where we now are one of the beneficiaries of that tournament, which has been going on, as you know, for I think that we're coming up now to the 30th year next year. And we raise money. I think we've gotten to about the 3 million mark uh, uh, over the number of years. Obviously, we, we've only been, I've only been associated with it over the last eight or nine years. Um, and it's been a great experience. Um, not, not just because they get money to help those kids. We, we actually end up, uh, you know, using the money that we raise from that tournament. <clears throat> and then I use my contacts on Bay street to get sponsors to come mm-hmm. and participate in that. And, uh, but the whole process of doing that is, as you know, is a, is a great thing to do because you're, you're dealing with a, a team of uh, volunteers and a committee that meets and works uh, hard to get that that tournament uh, executed, and uh, it's done a great job. And the people associated with it have done a great job. Uh, you know, Tej Moabir, who's the uh, chairman of uh, of Bay Street Hoops, does a fantastic job. You know, leading the committee, and uh, it's been a great experience. Yeah, well, it was my first year volunteering, and it was an amazing experience. And I was really happy to see all the kids that came out that have been helped by yeah. Drive for Dreams uh, and Kids Sports, which is the other beneficiary. Right. So it, it's at that point, to your point, um, it's not an abstract anymore of, okay, I'm just giving my money away. And it's going to go help someone. You yeah. see the people that it's helping and the yeah. impact that, that it's having. And it was, I found it to be very powerful. Yeah, it's... It's a great thing. I hear we, you know, when you help a kid, uh, you know, and we over, you know, we meaning my uh, immediate family has been, uh, you know, part of it because, you know, a lot of times uh, some of these kids are from out of town. They have no place to stay for a night or two. They stay in our basement. You know, they, my, my wife has been exceedingly understanding. Uh, we, we don't do that as much anymore, but we used to do it a lot at the beginning of it and uh it's great for my kids it's great for the kids to see uh to you know to be involved in a process where you're helping out other other kids from less fortunate circumstances uh we um you know uh this this year's tournament we had 53 teams uh you know from all um all uh corners of bay street uh, a lot of banks and uh accounting firms and other firms uh, participate and enter teams. And the best part of that is that the people that come to the tournament and play in it have a, have a great time. They, they love playing, <laughs> you know, not, we have the, we have the competitive division, which is quite serious basketball. They're usually, you know, former uh, high level players from university. And uh, we feel the team as an evolved team, but it's not really our player. It's really the, the former, the coaches and the former players of, of, uh, the program that we sponsor that, uh, so it, you know, we've won the championship last two years in a row, but none of those people work for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, I don't know how Tej is going to feel when he learns he about knows this. That. He, knows <laughs> he knows it, but you know, at that, at the competitive level, um, they are extremely competitive. And then below we have a, a number of divisions, as you know, and, you go down to the lowest division and they're having fun. They're having uh, a great time. And, you know, we have the party at the end of it on a Saturday night and there's an auction and all that stuff. And it's really, it's really a lot of fun. And they get to see some of the kids that are helped by the program. We had the uh, shoe for the car 
uh, contest again this year, which was also always exciting. So it's 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 great. It's great fun. Yeah, the shootout, the shoot for the car. Yeah, those are always uh, heart thumping moments when you think this person almost got it. Are they going to win that car? Yeah. And unfortunately, it hits the rim. I don't think anybody's come close yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we look at where you have to stand to throw that ball, yeah, it's from, from half court, but right? It's half court. So, well, Steph Curry could probably make that shot without a problem. You know what? Next year we'll have to get Steph down here yeah. to uh-huh. to make that shot. I th- I think that would be great. But the reason I wanted to bring this up is because I think it. The way you speak about it and uh, your own perspective, like earlier on, you shared that, you know, you you don't want to be surrounded by people that are saying yes to you. You don't want to be surrounded by just constant success. And I think being involved in programs like this actually helps people better themselves. It helps them help out with their communities, of course. And, And also just learn. I, I always find these experiences to be really good learning experiences because you learn about yourself and about the world around you, which can be very impactful. I think that's right. I, I think also like, uh, uh, you know, volunteer uh, structures, organizations like that, where you have, you know, you have a bunch of work to do and then there's a bunch of volunteers, you know, there isn't, you, you know, you can't, you can't direct people like you would in a, although that would be my inclination. <laughs> You know, Tej always, he's always like, okay, Mike, just let me take this. Um, but, you know, he's, he manages to get the most out of people. And, you know, it, it's a inter- an interesting thing. If you want to volunteer for that, it's an interesting opportunity to sort of, to challenge yourself because you go into an unstructured environment with a bunch of things to do. And, you know, nobody's telling you to do them. Like nobody's, you know, so you have to volunteer to do them. And then you have to do them. And so some people, you know, uh, sort of hide in the corner a little bit. Mm-hmm. And some people really take to doing it. Like they become the stalwarts of, uh, of, the, of, the, um, of the, the committee. And it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting sort of test, psychological test. Like if you're, if you're looking to move up in an organization, you know, volunteer for one of those organizations. Because that's where... You get to test your mettle as to how much of a self-starter are you? How can you deal with, you know, information that you don't know all the information? You have to figure it out. You have to ask questions. You have to, you know, it's kind of the same skill set that you need to succeed in a in a business setting. Yeah, and as we discussed before with uh, the lockdowns and social isolation, it's a great way to get out there, oh, yeah, for sure. meet people, network. I mean, I got to meet you and a bunch of other wonderful uh, yeah. individuals as well, which has been a great experience for me. And it also felt good to do something to give back, right? Because I feel oftentimes, especially when we have very demanding jobs and we're very focused and driven, yeah. um, we can sometimes forget about the world around us. And this is always a great opportunity to sort of come out of there, you know, yeah. take a step back and realize that there's a whole other Pretty much, well, there's a whole other planet out there yeah. and you need to pay attention to it. It can't just be yeah, about you. Know, people think that you, you know, you give back or you give to charity or, you know, you, you give money away, you know, near the end of your life or once you've been, become successful or whatever. But like, it's not true. You should be, you know, in the mindset of giving back all the way along in your career. Uh, it's a great thing to do. Uh, it's it's uh, wonderful uh, learning experience, but it's also very rewarding. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've, I've always like from the very beginning of my career, always done something in my spare time 
to give back to the community. I've, you know, before starting Drive for Dreams, I was involved with various charities that where we, you know, would you'd have to, you know, go and go to meetings and and uh, deal with, you know, the issues for that particular charity. And I always found it to be the most rewarding stuff that I was doing. You know, I belong to a business group. It's a YPO group. And, you know, the guys will say, you know, Mike, when you talk about the basketball stuff, you know, your drive for dreams, like you light up, like you really, it's, it's, it's obvious that that's the stuff you really like to do, you know, as opposed to, you know, the business stuff, which is a little more, you know, structured and more mundane, et cetera. And it's true. Like you get a lot of reward, a lot of psychic reward from, uh, from, uh, you know, devoting time and effort to helping other people. Definitely. And I think that mentorship portion is, is very big, especially when you do have a child who had, yeah. hasn't had all the opportunities out there. And it helps you, I think, also improve yourself, but also help that person along the way. Yeah, I, I'd say, you know, the, the, the biggest thing that I've, that's helped me mature as a person is learning to be a better mentor. And, uh, you know, I, I thought, you know, I've had mentor, I had mentors early in my career. So I knew what the experience was like being mentored by good and bad mentors. There are good and bad mentors. Uh, and then as I've gotten down the pike, um, you know, when I see my role now, say, for example, in Evolve, I'm more of a mentor, cheerleader, chairman. That's how I would classify myself as, you know, when there's there's difficult problems. That's where my experience can come to bear. But I, you know, I'm not going to tell the team, you know, what they should do about their daily lives or their daily activities. And learning to be a good mentor is a skill, and it's uh, it's something that comes with maturation and and also benefits from perspective that you built over the years. You know, living your life and experiencing the ups and downs of your own life. Absolutely. And earlier on, we were discussing about the younger generation yeah. and you spoke about your concern about uh, their ability to get promotions. And I think mentorship is something that can definitely help them. At CGI, for instance, we have a mentorship program where uh, new grads and uh, people that are starting out uh, very early in their career are able to be partnered with someone who's more senior yeah. for a mentorship role. Essentially, you know, help them figure out yeah. uh, their work life, but also, you know, yeah. create a relationship uh, that's long lasting. Uh, and I feel like you have this down very well, but how would you, I, I suppose for people that are looking for mentors, what advice would you give them? How should they go about seeking out a mentor? Mm. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's not the easiest of things to do. Uh, you, you know, you have to, uh, you know, I guess the best way to do it is to build relationships with people that have experience and can give you perspective. Uh, and so, you know, I had mentors early on in my career that helped me. Uh, I still, you know, harken back to lessons I learned from those mentors, you know, some of which were good, some of which weren't so good, <laughs> but you learn on both sides of the equation. Uh, and I think that if you're looking for a mentor, uh, you want to find somebody who's got, you know, experience to offer you and to give you some guidance. I think a lot of large companies have these mentorship programs. So, you know, it's just a question of, of, um, 
seeking that, seeking it out, but then figuring out who, you know, who in the mentor lineup is going to best fit is kind of a hit and miss thing. It's like, it's like getting a, you know, it's like getting a shrink. Like you're going to see a few of them and then decide which <laughs> one's going to either be the best, uh, the best for you. Um, I think that that's the way you, it's, it's kind of a hit and miss thing. Some, some, sometimes you can, you can be referred to, you know, you, some people who know you and maybe know that party could say, Hey, I think you guys would, would make a good match. Um, I mean, that's in essence how I met Raj. Like we met him, I met him and I kind of consider myself Raj's partner, but somewhat of a mentor to him. Um, you know, we met because somebody we both knew said, Hey, I think you guys would fit well together. You know, you're kind of opposites in a little way. So sometimes that's what you need is a, is a third party, uh, to, uh, to put you together. Um, and it's, it's a bit of a, a trial and error process, but I, I highly recommend it, especially for people inside of large organizations. I think it's really hard <clears throat> to move up in large organizations unless you're mentored by uh, senior people in, in those organizations. I mean, it's just so hard to, uh, to stand out unless you have the, unless you have those relationships we talked about earlier. Definitely. And it also helps with uh, skill development as well, right? Yeah, Personal sure. development, skill development. And uh, my take is that it's never a bad thing to know people. So For sure. I mean, one of the, one of the programs we just launched uh, last year in, uh, in Drive for Dreams was uh, partnering some of the kids who end up graduating from their university program. So we deal with them at, at the high school level and they go off to university and they, they play. Not all of them obviously end up playing pro. Uh, some of them are just coming out of, out of the schools and they're, you know, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. And we started um, a program where we tried to match up uh, those people who are graduating with mentors inside of CIBC. CIBC offered us uh, to match up to some of their mentor programs inside. And it, and it, it, it worked for, you know, probably half the parties. Uh, and, you know, so it's a, it's a trial and error thing. Yeah, but it sounds like an amazing program, and um, yeah. and obviously not everything is going to work for everyone because we're all individuals with different needs. Yeah. Uh, so it makes sense that you're going to have some of those hit and misses. But I mean, uh, I think it's amazing the the story that you told about how you met your CEO Raj Lala was through a third party who said, yeah. "Hey, I think you guys would hit it off," and then you went and you started up Evolve. So <laughs> well, we we first started a, a, another company called oh, you did. yeah called Propel. Oh, let's hear about Propel. So, so Propel was a company we it was a um, a closed end fund product uh, company. Um, when did we start that? It was probably two thousand and eight, somewhere around there. And uh, we we raised uh, about a billion dollars in different products, and then we sold it to Fiera. And then Raj went and worked for Fiera. So he was there for a few years. And then he circled back afterwards, went <laughs> to work for a another ETF platform. And then um, and then after that, he came around and said, I want to start my own my own thing. So uh, you know, I'm happy he came back and asked me if I wanted to participate <laughs> in it. So so hold on. Did you say you sort of propel in two thousand eight, like in during the crisis? was just after it yeah it was yeah. it was just after that that period yeah it's probably 2009 
uh, somewhere in that in that in that period. So was there a lot of opportunity at that point? Well, th there was uh, because you know people were looking for ways to recover, you know, from the, <laughs> from the disaster that was the market at the time. Uh, we brought to market a, f a fund managed by John Paulson, who, if you remember, famously predicted the demise of the uh, the mortgage business, uh, the real estate business in the U.S., and bet against it and made a huge amount of money. So we brought a product to market with him managing it. And it was an exceedingly difficult product to bring to market. And then, you know, the product didn't perform that particularly well. But we used it as a as a uh, impetus to to uh, launch other products. And, it w and that's how we built the business. Wow. Your, your life is just full of one project after another. And yeah. I, I'm learning that you have interesting timing, Michael, with all these different things well, that you've sometimes. been starting up. <laughs> so. Sometimes. It's not always interesting. Always interesting timing. Um, I, I did want to speak with you about industry trends as well, because we were speaking about Evolve and market research and how you guys bring some of these things out. Um, so I guess we can start with what have you been seeing in the industry as of late when it comes to the ETF market? Well, I mean, you know, I think I think ETFs are are the new are going to be the new dominant product in the marketplace or they already are to some extent i mean a lot of the flows are going to etfs because of what we talked about because they're they're uh, fast they're easy to transact and they're and they're inexpensive um so i think a lot of people are are you know putting money to work in the etf side of things but the mutual fund business is still a very big business um so we're, you know, we're taking market share away slowly but surely from the mutual fund business. And we, some of our funds have mutual fund versions, you know, because we know that some channels are easier, more comfortable using the mutual fund version, but they're the exact same product. It just has a different wrapper. So I think you'll see mutual fund companies doing more of that, bringing, you know, you know, putting out ETF versions of their mutual funds. But some of them have cost, uh, you know, infrastructure for those mutual funds that doesn't really match up to an ETF environment. So that they have to bring out new products. And so, you know, the, of course, the problem with large mutual funds bringing out ETFs is they're lower margin. Mm -hmm. So they cannibalize their profitability by bringing out more ETFs uh, versus mutual funds. And, you know, they'd like to stay with the mutual funds if from a profitability perspective. But that process, that march is is underway, and I think will continue. Um, so I think in terms of trends, you know, from a, from a marketplace perspective, obviously yield is back in vogue. Um, you know, so I think we're seeing yield products uh, being attracting a lot of assets. Uh, we haven't seen like fixed income. You know, we've got a lot of flows into like short duration fixed income. Um, I'm not sure, you know, people got burned with longer duration bond funds. So I think that's going to be slower to to get uh, revived. But that's also coming back because yields are finally up to, you know, what people expect in the bond fund. Right. But, you know, the bond funds right now are probably yielding as much or, you know, comparably, you know, as much as the HESA products. So if you're, you don't want to take any duration risk, you know, which one makes the most sense. So that eventually i think work itself out but i think 
uh, yield products and interesting uh, thematic products, I think are still going to be um, a big theme going forward in the, in the marketplace. Definitely. I think thematics is a really interesting one. And I, um, we were speaking earlier and Evolve has a cars. Cars which, product, yeah. Yeah. So can you speak a bit about that? Like, is what is that focused on? Just, is it luxury cars, regular cars? No, no, that's focused on the automation of the car, like the uh, electrification okay. and automation of the car. Uh, you know, both, uh, you know, self-driving, um, and uh, the electrification of cars. So it's it's not just, you know, obviously um, companies like Tesla are in it, but also companies around that whole process are are part of that portfolio. Right. You know, that marketplace, the self-driving has had its challenges getting off the ground, but it's going to be a massive market. Uh, so you're a believer of self-driving cars? I think self-driving vehicles. I'm not sure about cars. Like, I think cars will be... Um, the latest, uh, you know, the last in line, but trucks and transportation vehicles and things like that are, are definitely um, going to be more self-driving in the near future than they are now. Yeah, I, th that's actually really interesting because I, I drive and uh, the, sometimes uh, when you're surrounded by a bunch of trucks and to think about looking over and there's no one in the passenger in the vehicle in the driver's seat it's a bit daunting to think that we're we're at that point where we can just fully rely on this technology to not swerve yeah, over i don't, I don't or think do it's anything. yet yeah, i don't think yeah, i don't think it's yet at the 100 reliability level yeah. but it's going to get there uh, i think you know the technology you know ai is going to accelerate it um i think it's going to it's definitely going to get there china's way ahead of us and and uh automated driving um so we're we're, we're going to get there yeah well china always seems to be uh, a bit ahead of us in in a lot of different tech areas i mean we were speaking about cbdc's earlier and yeah. uh uh that's the speaking of thematic funds you do have some crypto yes, uh, in do. the portfolio as yes, well we do. <laughs> so <laughs> let's let's talk about crypto what are your thoughts on crypto michael that's a big question what are your thoughts on crypto <laughs> Well, I you know I think Bitcoin's here to stay. I I think that's the most uh, the most uh, definitive statement I can make. Uh, I think Ether's far be uh, not far behind, but close behind that. But as it relates to how the rest of you know the coin world and the NFT world is going to develop, I'm not, I'm just not sure. I think a lot of that was uh, you know a lot of it was hype. Um, so we've gone through a period where that's been you know. Uh, you know, more or less wiped out. Like the people aren't aren't buying much of those things anymore. But you know, it will it will revive itself. It will develop and consolidate and revive itself. But I think Bitcoin is um, is definitely here to stay. And you know, obviously, everybody's been uh, tracking uh, the 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 you know BlackRock uh, you know doing coming to market with a Bitcoin ETF. We'll see if the SEC approves it. Uh, there's actually six issuers that are have products that they've, you know, tried to get approved by the SEC, and the SEC has consistently turned them down. But you know, BlackRock has obviously has a lot of uh, market power, and uh, they've come up with a solution using 
providers using uh, the <clears throat> the infrastructure behind the product is uh, is very well put together, and you know it's the same infrastructure that we use on our product. Our product is more or less identical, or probably a little bit better than the the, the BlackRock ETF that's coming to market. Uh, we are very much a pioneer in that space, along with some of the other issues in Canada. And, uh, you know, Canada was ahead of the U.S. in, in, the, in that space. So, um, you know, I think Bitcoin will benefit greatly if those products are approved. The SEC seems to be, uh, the buy language seems to be that they will approve it. You know, and we were just uh, talking about it today. Somebody was calculating that the buying power that will come into the Bitcoin market might be as much as 50 or $60 billion worth of buying power going into the market. So you can expect Bitcoin <laughs> prices to, to appreciate substantially if, um, if those products are approved. Uh, yeah, that I, I will say I've been very impressed with our regulators on the crypto front, yeah. because as you mentioned, we have been ahead of the U.S. on uh, in that area, at least, which has been great. Uh, I actually listened to uh, Rick Edelman at a conference, and he was speaking about um, Canadians being ahead in the crypto market and mm -hmm. just the ethics around allowing these types of products, right? In the sense that when you see something go 10 times uh, in the span of, let's say, a week and to lock a significant portion of the population out of that type of growth opportunity uh, isn't really... So are you talking about like a coin or something? Yeah, or? like any like coin, yeah. uh, right? Uh, we Because th there was a... I'm sure now people have a different perspective, but this was before some of the issues occurred in the crypto market. But you had coins that were like going 20, 20 times overnight. It was it was pretty crazy, and uh, it mm. almost felt like you can just throw a dart in the dark, and you'll you'll land on something positive. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a uh, I'm not a big proponent of that stuff. Like, I, I <laughs> you know, I, I do own some coins that I you know ended up owning through some investment that I have. Uh, and but it's that coin has is is attached to a business, so I think there are coins that are attached to businesses that are actually generating revenue that are legitimate uh, potential coins. I mean, when you say coins, they're really securities. Like, I, like you know, this whole debate about, are they a security? Are they not a security? Of course, they're like more like a security than they are a commodity. Certainly coins are securities, in my, in my opinion. Bitcoin, you could argue, is a currency. Um, you know, maybe it's not, a, it's not a, a purely defined security. But uh, I think, you know, there was a lot of, speculation in that coin market and i th i don't think it it uh it was good for the market i i, I think it ultimately it was you know it, it collapsed you know a lot of it collapsed i mean ft ftx you know its collapse was based upon its own coin oh, collapsing yeah. <laughs> um you know and and uh they you know manipulated you know uh investor uh, assets to to hide it uh i just don't I didn't think that any of that was helpful to the development of the the space of the crypto space. So you know we're getting you know hopefully getting that behind us, and they're you know they're going to deal with it from a uh, you know the Department of Justice is obviously pursuing some matters there from the U.S. and um, you know I think that'll be put to bed, and then people will uh, probably face a more regulated environment where not uh where we're not going to see some of that uh, some of those abuses that we saw 
Um, and they're, you know, the SEC in particular is, is really uh, going after these unregulated exchanges and uh, making, it dif- making their lives difficult to, uh, you know, inside the U.S. for sure. But they still operate outside the U.S. So, you know, they're... There's still some some uh, risks out there. I mean, I get a call every day from some guy trying to sell me a Bitcoin trading strategy that's guaranteed <laughs> to make money. You know, I was like, okay. Well, I mean, FTX is the world west, and I think there is a lot of things going on there. But to your point about being uh, all that stuff being good for the market, being bad for the market, I think every market has its trials and tribulations. And the crypto market sort of has gone through that now and it's shed the extra fat, if you will. It's unfortunate that people lost out, but I feel that unfortunate things happen in life and hopefully everyone's, you know, a, a bit smarter about it now. And to your point about coins that are attached to something, there are a lot of, I feel there's a lot of innovation in the space where you'll see coins coming out that are attached to something very a very interesting idea, uh, like web storage, is something that I've been looking at recently because everything's going on the web, and there's mm-hmm. some really fascinating coins that are focused yeah. uh, on that issue. Yeah. So I, I do think there's a lot of innovation in that arena, and that there's a lot more to come. Yeah, I think, but you know, I think that it's going to be more, far more regulated, and so it's going to be harder for people to uh, manipulate the marketplace like they have been. And so, so to me, it's you know, buyer beware, because like, you know, things can move, uh, you can buy low and sell high in theory, you know, but <laughs> you know, a lot of people get stuck, uh, on the opposite end of that. Uh, it's just like the meme stocks. I, I think that's another area where, you know, the market sort of lost track of itself. Uh, you know, there's no real rhyme or reason for that stuff, except for pure speculation and people like, pers- you know, pursuing something, um, I mean that's been you know shoved out of the market right now and hopefully it comes back in a different way where where people with good innovative ideas can access the market i don't see us doing a uh an etf based on coins anytime in the near future <laughs> um you know so that idea is up for grabs i guess <laughs> i guess if somebody wants to try it it's just it's just really hard when you're you're you've got uh, things that have uh, that kind of price volatility and and uh, liquidity issues around it. You can't really build ETFs off illiquid, uh, volatile assets. Uh, so who knows? Maybe five years from now, I'll uh, we'll be looking at it. But right now, I don't think I don't see yeah. it in the near future. I think, as I said, Bitcoin is going to be here to stay. Um, so I mean, that's the centerpiece for the crypto market. I think as long as People are, you know, accepting of that fact. And it looks like the regulators are eventually getting around to, you know, to chinning up to that idea. Then an ecosystem will build around that. Um, You know, and obviously the governments all want to get in on the action before, you know, they get threatened by, get threatened by Bitcoin. So, you know, a lot of governments want to bring their own, uh, their own coins to market, their own currencies to market. Uh, there, there's a lot of discussion about that, so we'll see how that impacts everything. Yes, the CBDCs. Uh, if another very interesting area, because yeah. uh, and I believe the Bank of Canada is getting pretty close. They've been having a lot of yeah. consultation sessions uh, for our CBDC. Um, I feel like I can speak about the crypto market for hours because it's an area I'm very interested in, mm. and there's a lot to be Just said. Be careful. <laughs> there's I. 
I'm always very interested by innovation and people's ingenuity. And I feel like there's so much of it there. Obviously, when it comes to investing in that market, you have to do a lot of research. You have to be, as you pointed out, buyer be aware. You have to realize that it's not regulated. So something may not be as it seems. Uh, But there's people that have become very savvy and that have done well. But I would advise anyone to just be very careful and do a lot of research before you do anything within that market. Um, Don't confuse luck with savvy. There, <laughs> I, I feel like just some... because people you know got out at the right time and got lucky and got in and out and made a bunch of money doesn't doesn't mean that they're have a high IQ. They just happen to guess right. Just like you can go in a casino and bet on numbers and make a bunch of money and doesn't make you a great gambler. So just just be wary. I think when things are you know things are not based on uh, fundamentals. There's always uh, an issue about, you know, um, uh, things not being predictable or Uh, as predictable. I agree. I think there was some luck, but I also think some people actually did get quite good at it. Um, But we do need to wrap up. However, before we go, Michael, I want to hear about your vision for the future. What do you see happening? In what area? In, in the, we can talk, it can be the ETF world, it yeah. can be our industry okay. in general. Like, mm-hmm. where do you see things going? Well, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that, uh, you know, artificial intelligence is going to be the, um, you know, the uh, industrial revolution on steroids. I think uh, AI is going to change everything that we do and every way that we do it. I think tremendous value is going to be created from it. And uh, I think we're going to solve a lot of problems. Uh, there's definitely issues with it and risks. And I'm happy to see people, you know, screaming from the treetops about the risks. Uh, I hope that that leads to um, intelligent regulation. Um, who knows? Governments haven't had a great track record of doing that. But I, I believe that, you know, innovation is good. And I think that, um, you know, um, you know, that area is, is, uh, is a possible great creator of value and, and, uh, and wealth for the marketplace. I don't think it's going to be a big job displacement thing. Uh, but if you're not, um, you know, if you're not up to speed on the latest tools that are available to you in your job using AI, then you're going to be replaced by somebody who is up to speed with the latest AI tools available to your job. So I think that's uh, definitely a warning signal, but there's going to be other jobs created. There's going to be more, as many jobs are going to be wiped out. All the, you know, all the writers are thinking they're going to get wiped out. That's not, that's not true. I think, you know, writers are, there's going to be more demand on writers who can take basic, um, basic dialogue, basic uh, writing and turn it into something special. So, you know, for me, it's just, it's just making, it's setting the bar higher. So yes, uh, some of the poor writers will be out of jobs, but maybe arguably they should be out of jobs. Uh, They should move on to something else. And so, so I would encourage, like I tell my kids, I say, listen, you know, AI may not put you out of a job, but you're going to have to integrate AI into what you do. And you're going to have to know the tools that are available using AI that will make you more productive and improve your ability to do your job. So I think that's, that's, uh, that's the most important advice I can give young people. 
Oh, no, that's great. And AI has been the topic for the past little while. Uh, and I believe it, it all comes back to coexistence, to your point. You know, it's not going to completely displace us. But um, like I mentioned in, in our last episode, we, we were speaking about AI and we spoke about using AI to as an as a tool to aid us, right? Mm -hmm. uh, especially because there are gaps in our society that AI, AI can help with. Right. Uh, healthcare being one of those areas. For so, sure. you know, let's use it to our advantage and give everyone uh, the best experience of life that we can. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think uh, it will it will be a net positive. I think people who think it's going to be a disaster are not are not thinking about it quite correctly. And so, I think that uh, you got to stop fearing it and embrace it and uh, use it for your benefit. I I think that there are people on different sides of that debate, and that is a debate that yeah. we will have another day. But I do agree with you that there's a lot of good application for AI, and we shouldn't be as fearful as some people want us to be. Yeah. Um, Michael, thank you. This has been a very insightful discussion. I've greatly enjoyed it. Well, I've enjoyed my time here, too. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, now for a bit of housekeeping. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to share, like, and subscribe, and we will catch you with the next one. Thank you.